Okay, I think we're ready to get going. Um, welcome to ATARC's Thursday After Lunch webinar series on a very rainy, um, miserable day here in the Washington, D.C. area. Hopefully we can brighten things up with this panel. Uh, I'm Tom Suter, the founder of the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center, and today we're gonna talk about artificial intelligence at the wheel, driving identity management solution, solutions and governance. I'd like to welcome all the attendees. Special thanks to the Forge Rock team, uh, Elena Neal, Chris Hayes, Rob Miller, John Gutter, Kabir Kamba, uh, Tommy Cathy, Spiros Angelopoulos, and the rest of the Forge Rack team. They've been a great partner with us. They really care about this topic, and uh, thank you again. Uh, this poll, we're going to hear from our panelists. I mean, this excuse me, this afternoon, we're going to hear from our panelists. We're going to have uh, follow that with a little bit of Q&A, pop in a poll question, and then answer your questions. So if all my panelists can uh, get unmuted and uh, get the video on. We'll get we'll get rolling here. Uh, good morning, all. I'll do some quick introductions and then we'll get into the discussion a little bit. Uh, but we have with us uh, Robert Hankinson, who's director of Office IT Infrastructure Bureau of Information Resource Management at the U.S. Department of State. How are you doing today, Robert? Doing great, Tom. Fantastic. Thanks for coming here. And you, uh, you're in the uh, DC suburbs, I take it? Uh, yeah, I'm in Southern Maryland. So enjoying the, okay. the beautiful weather outside. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, next, we have with us um, Colonel, uh, and I, I, I probably should have prepped this up a little bit, Sin, Sinaja uh, Sundiata Walker. Did I get that right, Colonel Walker? Or did I come close? I don't think we have audio from Colonel Walker, so we will get back to her. Uh, nothing like technical problems on, on these. I think we're getting used to that too. Uh, next, I've got uh, Phil Lamb, Executive Director of Identity uh, Management at uh, Identity at GSA. Hello, Good Phil. Afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks, Tom, for having me. No problem. And you look like you're, I don't think you're in the office. I think you're, are you at home or in the office? I can't tell. It's look very, it I looks am very at home. Tuesday back there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. Um, I like the whiteboard back there. You got the little, uh, you got the little board back there. That's right. Exactly. I feel like I, I, it's got a GSA type of feel to it. And uh, next we have uh, Pablo Juarez, Chief Verification Branch, uh, USCIS. How are you doing today, Pablo? Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting us here. Yeah, no, no problem. No problem. And are you in the Washington, D.C. area? I am. I live in the city. Yes, I'm enjoying the uh, wonderful rain. Fantastic. Fantastic. And um, we also have John Kimball, a distinguished solution architect with Forge Rock. Hello. I'm down here in wonderful Dallas, Texas, although it yeah. sounds like we have a similar weather at this point. Yep, I like your Halloween spirit there. You got, I see a couple, yeah. a couple ghosts on the on the flying there, on the plexiglass. I think. And uh, Colonel Walker, have we gotten the audio together yet? If not, we'll figure that one out. Uh, maybe she's in the Pentagon or something, and we can't get out. But we'll 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 work through we'll work through that. Um, so what we're going to do is, why don't we? Um, start with you, uh, uh, Phil, at GSA, maybe kind of giving us a, giving us some background on what you're doing inside of your job and give us a little bit about cr across government on what you see around identity management AI. Thanks. Sure. Sure. So um, in my role as executive director of identity here at GSA's technology transformation services, I really help agencies tackle their public facing identity challenges. And the way we think about that is each agency handles that challenge by themselves today. Um, whether you are a beneficiary um, and you're working with the SSA, that's you know, one sort of silo of identity, or you're at Veterans Affairs or at IRS or pick your citizen facing agency. And so what we want to do is to work with these agencies to identify those commonalities of identity challenges and then bring forward solution sets so that we can solve this problem in the more shared services way. So um, within TTS at GSA, um, I help with um, aligning the strategy we have around these citizen facing products and to bring forward new capabilities uh, that agencies may have as well. So um, 
so with that, you know, what we're seeing across the space is exactly that recognition that um, we're, we're all in this together when we try to identify the citizen because we're really the same person. And so can we bring forward these capabilities together and then think about, hey, what's next? Um, can we help agencies on acquiring new identity management solutions? And that's why I'm excited to be part of this panel because I think machine learning and AI might be the next step um, to make things a little bit more secure and perhaps even uh, more seamless um, to our user. So there, uh, there's a little bit less friction um, when they interact with the government. Um, but thank you for having me, excited to be on the panel. Yeah, thank you. You're my citizen services uh, uh, player in, the, in this, this production that we have today. So thank you. Um, thank you. Next up, well, let's go with uh, Robert Hankinson with the Department of State. Definitely want to hear about all the challenges going on around the world and, and, and a lot of things that you have to deal with internal and external constituents. Yeah, yeah so uh, we also do quite a bit of uh, citizen services as well, issuing passports and visas and uh, all that we do at 276 locations around the world and then 100 domestic locations here. Uh, so a lot of what we've been doing lately, of course, has been uh, enabling what we our mission for for COVID, right so everything that we we do is is in person we, we do in person uh, identity vetting for passports and visas and things like that uh hiring process is very very in person we do a lot on our classified network so even in that case we, we we've had to do a lot of things uh in person so my role as the the director of the foreign operations uh directorate uh uh the uh, ICAM program falls under me, the uh, Endpoint Protection uh, Video Program Offices, PKI PIV, uh, Global IT Modernization, and uh, Data Analytics uh, AI also fall under me. So I'm, I'm kind of at this great crossroads to provide an, an incredible virtual collaboration, uh, remote access service to uh, not only our internal users, but the, the uh, entire uh, citizen population of the, uh, the US. Um, so it's largely what we've been doing in the last six, nine months was to uh, change the entire culture of the Department of State to be one that's, we don't telework. We, we come into the office, we come into the passport issuance offices, and we, we do things in person with, with people sitting right in front of us. So changing our entire culture to do everything remotely, how do we identify people using the technologies that we have or, or that we could, we could stand up quickly? Um, so our, our remote access and remote identification capabilities were, were, were not non-existent, but they weren't, they weren't that great. So uh, before COVID, we, we would only see about two, 3,000 people uh, uh, teleworking every day. Uh, big snowstorms would completely crush our network uh, and it would be tough to uh, continue on your mission remotely before. So, but uh, since then we've expanded our remote access and now over uh, 85,000 people uh, access our networks uh, every day remotely. Uh, and uh, so we, to, to, to get to that point, we had shipped thousands and thousands of laptops, cameras, headsets, mice, docking stations. Uh, you name it. We, we didn't really have a good video collaboration solution. We, we were testing one, but we didn't have a really good one. Uh, so we, we had to stand up and expand and train thousands and thousands of host users and uh, get that going. And like I said, provide them cameras to be able to uh, collaborate remotely with people like, like we're doing right now. Um, we had to expand our identity solutions uh, because everything, well, the majority of what we did was based off of the PIV card, right? Because everybody was coming into the office and they were, they were authenticating using the PIV card. So we had, uh, again, we were, we were just starting down the road before all this happened, uh, studying up an, an IDAS, an enterprise-wide IDAS. Uh, so that had to quickly expand. We went from a couple thousand people to 107,000, both internal and external users. Uh, so that was incredible. Uh, and we transitioned most of what we do uh, to remote access, where before there wasn't much that I could do externally. Now I can do my entire job outside, like in my basement, like I'm doing right now, uh, with, with, with no effort whatsoever, other than just getting up and coming on, on my computer. We transitioned so many applications to the cloud. 
Um, our, our entire hiring process has moved from in-person to virtual. Um, and we, even this year, we did uh, the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that is, but that's where other nation states come together and they debate world political issues. We did that virtually as well. Um, and that's usually a huge deal that uh, people are coming in from all over the world, nation state leaders coming in and we, we did it all with largely without a hiccup whatsoever. Uh, remotely. So it's it's all been an incredible time. Uh, I don't see that we're going to go back. Uh, telework is going to be enduring, I think. Uh, we, we, we've set things uh, in motion to where we can continue this for a long time to come, and we're starting to expand on this. We're looking to get deeper into our zero trust uh, implementation, um, moving more and more apps to the cloud. Uh, and our next step is to start to use AI and, and identity to do things like adaptive authentication and, and uh, step into those new areas that new, new OMB policies have opened up for us. Uh, so it's really an exciting time for us. Uh, so I, I look forward to uh, answering all the questions that we have and, and, and get some other ideas for it. Yeah, we'll get into it a little later, but it's almost the exact opposite of a John LeCar move, you know, uh, book where, you know, you're doing all this stuff in person and now it's like we've gone completely the other way. Yeah. But uh, we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, next, can we go with uh, Pablo? Yes, hi. So, yeah, I, I'm in, uh, in OIT within USAS. I'm, I'm I head up the verification branch where we support the E-Verify and Save programs. Um, E-Verify, some of you may know, is where we uh, determine if an individual is eligible to be employed within the United States. Um, and on the SAVE program, um, it's where we um, determine, or not determine, I'm sorry, we provide information about current immigration status on individuals who are requesting benefits, um, um, such as um, uh, housing assistance, educational loans, et cetera. Uh, and we provide them the, the best information that we have. And what's interesting is that um, we get all sorts of information from individuals, these, these um, U.S. citizens to LPRs to, to immigrants about you know obtaining a job here in the United States and they send their documents in. And so our our mission is to retrieve this information and then to be able to positively identify and make that determination of who they are. Um, so a lot of what Phil was mentioning about you know going to different source systems. For instance, we go to uh, the State Department uh, to get passport information, right, to, make, to verify uh, whether the individual's passport um, is valid and if it's really that that person that's presenting that information um, to um, various other source systems within DHS, um, like CBP or ICE, et cetera, um, to provide current immigration status. So it's very important for us to make sure that we, we correctly identify the individual um, uh, and, and provide the proper information to the various agencies um, who are giving out these benefits and to the employer who's looking to um, hire this individual. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great challenge. I think recently we went through a modernization of the entire stack um, where um, we went from a monolithic um, system to bring it out to microservices and then leveraging AIML um, to gather all this different data from various source systems, put it together, come up with some sort of biographical package. And then we use uh, our scoring models and, and other sorting algorithms within microservices for each individual application to make a determination of is this, is the information we received from these various sources really this individual? Do they have the high enough score? Or can we make a determination that high confidence that we have this, um, uh, we have it correct uh, and be able to provide the information to the employer or the benefit granting agency? Um, what we're looking forward to, to do in the next uh, uh, year or so is to leverage more of the AIML and be able to create a learning model because sometimes we don't get it right. Sometimes uh, we don't have enough information from the individual to make the determination. And so we go to this manual process of going out to manually going out to these different source systems and then, and then make a determination. And our, what we want to do is learn from that. What is it that we could have done differently through that uh, process that we could uh, um, learn from and then implement into our models and then be able to reduce that manual verification and be able to get to answers quicker to the, to the public. So really looking forward to doing that in the next couple of months and years and, and really um, expand uh, the use of this technology in our systems. And, and of course, the, uh, uh, within our agency, we're going to the next iteration of, of gathering information from different uh, data sources and, and really create this golden record 
where you know we don't have to always make a, a query to the various source systems and, and, and run into some of the problems that Phil mentioned is you know the different um, categories, different ways of, of how an agency records this information that we'll be able to do that um, ahead of time and just have this golden record where we can see this individual and then have, with high confidence be able to achieve it and, and much quickly provide that answer to the public. So um, that, that's the next iteration we're looking forward to do and hopefully in the next coming years uh, we will take advantage of. So exciting times. Yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Um, and last, uh, Colonel Walker, we're gonna, we're gonna try you again here. I know we're trying to get you on phone. Uh, hopefully we can add you to the discussion when we resolve that. Uh, uh, we'll go with you, John, Mr. Kimball. Uh, it'd be great to get some perspectives from you. I know you're across government. You've got your colleagues over on the commercial side and uh, looking forward to your perspectives. Yeah, definitely. So as a product vendor, um, Forge Rock has focused on sort of a, a wide uh, set of capabilities across our platform, supporting you know, a lot of the areas we've been talking about here from you know, initial authentication um, to breaking down some of that security perimeter, doing continuous authorization with a zero trust model, um, so securing microservices. Um, but we've also seen that there's a need once we start to get into some of those core capabilities to add additional uh, capabilities around governance. So when you think of identity lifecycle management, the ability for us to automate some of that provisioning to allow users to ask for additional access, um, it creates a problem where you've got users accumulating privileges over time and we need some way to get a handle on that. Um, We've seen users are usually very good about asking for additional access, but they're usually very um, poor about asking to have access removed. So as users are traversing through their identity lifecycle, they're accumulating all of these privileges. And that sort of uh, introduces a problem when you're, you're relying on that information as part of your authorization framework for a zero trust model, for example. Um, so what we've looked at is, is a couple of different things. First of all, the ability for us to get a handle on the governance um, in the first place. So when you think of certification and going through a certification and attestation process, you've got hundreds, thousands of users and hundreds or thousands of entitlements that need to be gathered and brought into a system and managed somehow. And then once you've done that, um, kicking off that certification process and managing the life cycle of the process itself, usually you've got to have uh, certifiers go in and look at all of this data and make some intelligent decisions and deciding whether users have the right access or whether they should have certain access removed. And a lot of times um, it really just becomes a, a rubber stamping process where they're not really sure why a user has the access they have. So rather than remove the access, they're gonna go ahead and say, okay, well, I, I think you know, they, they can continue to have this access, which really perpetuates this bad practice around certification. Um, so the second area we wanted to look at was, was how we can introduce maybe uh, a better way of doing that governance. Um, and then um, how we can focus in and streamline that process so it becomes a much more effective process. And one of the ways that we looked at doing that was introducing machine learning uh, into the process. So taking all of that massive amount of data and putting it through a machine learning system and identifying patterns of access across user populations and across entitlements um, so that we can begin to look at um, building a confidence score around user access. So for example, um, if, if we see that there's a wide um, set of users that have a certain uh, type of access, maybe we have a fairly high confidence that that user has the right access. Um, but in some cases, we may see some outliers. We may see uh, exceptional access that users have. And in those cases, we might have a very low confidence that the user has the right access. So being able to identify those patterns is the first step. The second step we wanna be able to do is to provide explainability. Why does this user have this access? Why do we think that we have low confidence that the user should have this access? So that we can provide a lot more information to the certifier to make an intelligent decision during that certification process. And then the next thing we look at is, is how we can bubble up this data to the certifier so that they can focus on what's really important. 
If you think of having a thousand different users with entitlements that you need to certify, if we can knock that down so that you can focus in on maybe the top 10% of, of users that have a very low confidence, or if you look at it from the other way, they have a high risk associated with their access, um, we can make sure that the certifier pays attention to those. And then going even farther, we can start to leverage the model to see improvement over time. So we can see that the user uh, population slowly gets higher and higher confidence so that we can show that um, as the data has been certified that, that we, we continually improve the data. Um, and then the next step even after that is we can start to look at automating some of these processes. If we've certified the users over and over again and we have almost 100% confidence that the user has the right access, we can start to automate the process of certification itself. So that way the certifiers can look at it, they can say, yeah, I agree that that is the right access, I've done it before, it's very high confidence, I can go ahead and let that be certified and then focus in on just those uh, outliers. And then since we built that model, we can even then look at expanding into the automation of provisioning itself. So if we see a user coming into the system, we can identify the access that we think that they should have based on other users and entitlements and automate the granting or provisioning of those privileges to those users um, using the same process. Because um, one of the problems we've seen is that um, when, you, when you start to automate provisioning and you need some way to get a handle on it, a lot of uh, our customers have looked initially at doing role-based access control. So they start trying to build these logical containers around access that make sense of it and make it easy to grant and certify these things. The problem with that though is we've seen um, it takes a really long time to do it. It's really hard to be successful in building out a role model. Um, and then as you get to the end of that, if you are successful, the data within those roles is immediately stale. So you have to turn around immediately and start reevaluating all those roles. When you've got a system that can dynamically adapt to that data, it can continuously reevaluate that user population and uh, make much more dynamic decisions on the entitlements than you would get from a role-based access control system. So that's, that's uh, where we've been going specifically with uh, AI and ML at Fordrop. Thank you, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, it's kind of tough to even know where to begin on this. There's so many things. Uh, how about uh, the first one I'll, I'll ask is, um, so COVID-19, a pandemic caused a dramatic and immediate increase for secure remote uh, access for citizen employees. What immediate steps did, okay, once pandemic hit, uh, what, what exactly did you have to, what exactly you had to, you had to do? And some of you have talked about a little bit, but uh, maybe Pablo, what, what happened on that Monday after, uh, you know, after uh, we, we weren't coming back into the office? It was like March 15th. If I yeah, correctly. it was. There, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think in, in, um, in our agency, specifically our division, I think we're pretty lucky because um, we were already pretty much remote. Um, I only saw my team and um, once a week, really, um, in the office. And so we were really well prepared to be um, you know, completely remote and working remote. And, and our contractors that we have working for us, at least within uh, my branch, um, they're across the United States already. Um, we, we had contractors in, in Denver and Chicago, Seattle, and, and Seattle was the first one to remember correctly, uh, was hit that, you know, they were the first ones to completely go remote, um, uh, from their offices out, out there. Um, so we were well positioned. Um, we, we worked pretty well as, um, uh, as a branch, um, collaboratively online. We had the proper tools in our agency, um, the OIT infrastructure, um, was pretty well handled. Um, we were able to scale up our, our, um, um, our infrastructure and, and internet bandwidth to, to in VPNs uh, to accept this uh, uh, new increase in traffic. And of course, we, uh, we, we disabled video, unfortunately, but uh, um, all, all, all in the uh, interest of making sure everything, all the mission critical systems can work. Um, but for the most part, um, I think the challenges have been with working remotely. There are some individuals on teams and personalities that work better um, in person, right? They, 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 they need to have that uh, uh, interaction physical interaction and, and seeing people. And, um, and there's others that thrive in this, right? So it's just, it's a matter of balancing the two uh, as best as we can, you know, virtual happy hours and such and have that interaction. But um, for uh, in conclusion, yeah, for the most part, we were, we were well equipped to, to do this. Um, and we continued as if there's no hiccups. We haven't had any problems. We're still delivering what we promised to deliver um, and our, our um, 
sprint commitments and, and our velocity have all remained the same and in some cases have increased. So we're, we're, we're doing pretty good. Great, great. And uh, Robert, I know you were talking about the VP, you know, more people on, you had to increase your VPNs. Uh, maybe you can add a little more color to that, just the culture issues that are, you know, with this pandemic. Yeah, we had a lot of the same cultural issues. So a lot of our employees, half of our employees are at posts overseas, right? So uh, so when things were hitting in China, uh, our employees were feeling it at that time and embassies were shutting down, consulates were shutting down and people who were already removed from uh, the, the United States and the culture of the United States were feeling themselves more and more shut off. So we also did those things like the virtual happy hours uh, and embassies really did a great job of setting up trivia nights and things like that to keep people sort of involved. Um, but that's one of the benefits I think that we had that maybe not a lot of other people had is that because we had representation in these countries as they were hitting first, we were starting to see and we, we could see the snowball start to grow. And we could start to plan and, and, and test in little areas uh, what, what was failing, how we needed to shift as it started to go out to the other, eight, the, uh, other countries and other embassies. And we could, we could make changes sort of on the fly to say, well, this, this impacted the mission in China. We, we see what's happening in England. Let's go ahead and start to implement change there and provide services there, you know, WebEx and things like that. Let's, let's ship some laptops there and let's get ready. So it, then this big snowball came and then all of a sudden it was on the US's front door, right? But we weren't completely cold, but we, we still had to do a lot in a short period of time. We had a lot of conversations with our seniors, uh, a lot of concerns of whether or not we'd be able to support remote access. Uh, and justifiably, right, told you about the snow days causing us, us heck up until that point. Um, so the, the initial conversations were IT changes, IT, you know, what are we doing? Well, how are we expanding? Expanding? What are we going to do? How do we get uh, with the shipping lines shutting down and with um, uh, 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 commercial industry shutting down? How are we going to get the cameras, the laptops, and all these things and then get them out to the people that need them? Um, so the first initial conversations were all about that. What, what applications are internal? What, what do we need to move to the cloud? What, what is really needed to, to continue our mission? And how do we get that up in a good amount of time? But it wasn't long that uh, we stopped talking about the IT and started talking about the actual mission of the Department of State. That, that all kind of subsided. We took care of that pretty quickly. And then we were able to look at the citizen services and and uh, pulling American citizens back from these overseas countries and being able to provide them their support flights and, and to do all the things the Department of State was supposed to be doing because the infrastructure was in place and was set up very quickly. That's great. And Phil, I'm sure login.gov, uh, if you can't bring your, grand, your 96 year old grandmother to the Social Security Administration uh, anymore to go fill out some paperwork, right? So a lot of these agencies have had it migrate. How, I'm sure you're, you've got a little uptick in business when the, once this happened. Well, um, yes, <laughs> to, to put it bluntly. Um, so, you know, I think what the, the, this, this pandemic really highlighted for our government agencies is, hey, everyone knows that there's incentives and benefits of moving in-person capabilities online, but now it became a necessity. Um, the, we had to deliver our benefits, we had to deliver services um, in an online way. So, so yes, I think a, a lot of agencies, especially those um, that had obligations under the, the CARES Act, um, came to GSA and said, hey, how do we do this um, a little bit faster, a little bit better, um, because there are Americans that are in need today. So um, one of the, the, the agencies that we helped support directly was the Small Business Administration in administering their payroll protection program. So um, if you guys remember pre-COVID, SBA wasn't exactly a household name, um, right? So, so if you were a small business and you needed a loan, you went to your local bank, um, your regional bank for a loan. And the way that the Small Business Administration administered the PPP was through those banks. 
And the way that they did that to ensure that the loans coming through were guaranteed was they had to stand up a portal very quickly that allowed bankers to come in and, and, and actually funnel through all those applications to the SBA to guarantee those loans. And to do that, they, they really wanted to do it right um, and have multi-factor authentication. So they came to us, um, login was able to integrate it within eight days um, to go live to protect their program. And within the first five months, um, I believe it was over 5 million um, applications came through, um, totaling over $500 billion um, worth of loans. So we were happy to be part of SBA's mission in enabling that. Um, but that's just one story of how agencies have really like um, embraced the idea of online services done in a way that was secure enough, but relatively friction free compared to, you know, endangering yourself going in person, submitting loans and paper. So uh, $500 billion in just a few days. That's pretty uh, well in impressive. five months, in five months, five I think months, they processed okay. uh, 500 billion. Um, but I think the numbers are staggering, way beyond that now. Uh, yeah, I but, think it's way beyond that. And uh, yeah, and, and a lot of it got approved. Maybe they, they put it out over time, but a lot of it had been, most of it had been approved in just a matter of weeks. Um, yeah, that's a fantastic use case there. Uh, John, and, and I'm, I'm sure you weren't the, uh, I keep using these references, but nobody understands them anymore. I'm just getting old, but the Maytag repairman. I'm sure you weren't the Maytag repairman on a Monday morning. No, I, I I think the, the first interesting thing was that the pandemic sort of exposed a lot of bad security practices that had been accumulating for quite a while, where they were relying on this crunchy shell of security around the perimeter. You, you could rely on your employees to be inside that security perimeter. And once they're inside, they can pretty much do whatever they want. So in a lot of cases, the first wave of that was, okay, everybody's moving to VPN. Um, how do we make VPN more secure? So obviously, you know, we, we have solutions that, that enable that, adding things like biometric or multi-channel, multi-factor authentication to a VPN session. Um, but then the second wave was, okay, we've got too many people. We don't have enough VPN connections. How can we be even smarter about that? Um, so we wanted to introduce intelligence into that authentication process. And one of the ways that we look at doing that is, is looking at the context of the user's interaction with a service, not only during authentication, but throughout their interaction with the service. And then rather than just blocking their access, which you know in most cases isn't gonna be very effective, we wanted to be able to have much more control over the user's interaction. So for example, if we see that context has a certain amount of risk associated with it, maybe that's when we ask for additional uh, authentication, or we can even do maybe more subtle things like limiting what the user can do, maybe limiting the throughput that they have or limiting the ability to execute certain actions within a downstream application. And then the next part of that is continuous reevaluation of that context. So with a zero trust model, we want to trust that the user is who they say they are when they are authenticated initially, but we want to go back and see whether that initial authentication has changed or even if it's gotten stale over time. So being able to apply that continuous authorization to drive the user's um, interaction with the service is, is an important part of working remotely. Um, so we, we've actually seen you know, a, a lot of both commercial and um, uh, across the government, a lot of drive towards doing something a little bit more subtle uh, as part of the authentication and authorization process. Great, great. I noticed we've got a, we're starting to get some really good questions in the Q and A. Uh, keep them coming. We're going to get to them in a, in a in a minute. I'd like I'd like to start a do a couple of poll questions and get you guys engaged out there. Um, what is the biggest barrier agency is facing during during pandemic? Uh, identity access management, security, lack of IT resources, lack of re reliability and performance. And the second question is, what is the biggest challenge your agency face when switching to remote work? Productivity, collaboration, communication. Uh, we'll give that just a couple of seconds and we'll see what we come back with. Sometimes these things get, you get some surprises. Sometimes you don't. Okay, Alyssa, what do we got? 
Okay. That is, uh, it's surprising how much it is to me. Um, you know, definitely, definitely a little bit, I guess that's why we're happy. We need to do more of these, I think. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think going into COVID for me, identity access management was one of the biggest technological barriers to IT mod that I saw, you know, in doing a lot of this around ATARC, but, uh, and then uh, productivity hasn't been a problem. That's crazy. Lack of tech support, not too bad. Communication, um, collaboration. Some of the things that you, uh, the panelists were talking about earlier. Any comments from you all? Any surprises there? Not really, okay. Uh, we, bet we definitely need to do more of these, I think, because <laughs> that seems to be one of the biggest problems we have. I've got a few questions I wanted to get to. Um, Jennifer, oh, I don't want to say names, but uh, can you identify, um, how do you uh, identify passport applicants remotely, collect fingerprints? And I think that uh, uh, Pablo and Robert, you probably can both answer that. Do, both, do you get, both have a fingerprint program, I believe? And I'm not sure about you, Phil, but maybe what you see across government agencies. Pablo, you want to kind of go yeah. to that, maybe? Well, you know, I I depend on you know the State Department to to, to get that uh, information for us, right? We just reach out for the passport number and, and obtain information. And same with SSA, right? We go out to them and and, and ask for that information. So um, we're we're just a consumer of what they're obtaining. So it's more you know it's more Robert's. Uh, unfortunate task of obtaining that information and biometrics and we're we just consume them yep go ahead robert yeah so i, I don't know that we're actually collecting them remotely uh we can validate them and and uh do things like that remotely but when somebody is coming in to set up a passport to, or to do something like that they still have to come in in person and show their forms of identification and that's all got to be done in person unfortunately the good thing is, is that not a lot of people are traveling overseas right now. So lines aren't very long and we can space out, we can social distance it. And there was already plexiglass over, over the people collecting that information anyway. Everything was done uh, through uh, different screens. So there's not a lot of risk with that, but I don't know that those, those exact processes have changed much. Gotcha, gotcha. And we have another question. There appears to be lots of interest in AI, ML, data analytics, and uh, moving forward to expand focus and use technology. The question is, what is the general agency knowledge set when it comes to AI and how to deploy and start programs focus on using the technology to advance the agency? Um, and basically how, you know, how do you do the education piece of, of that? Is in, inside of identity management, how do we get, um, learn about these latest and greatest technologies? I, I'm sorry, if, if that was for me or if it's a jump. Uh, well, yeah, I probably should do my moderator job. How about since you're talking, we'll start with you and then uh, we'll hit, we'll hit everybody else. So uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about what AI is and machine learning and data analytics. You get everything yeah. from it can do absolutely everything you need, but it it takes a ton of data and a ton of money and a ton of systems down to uh, it's it's going to take over the world, right? Skynet sort of sort of issues, depending on who you're talking to. Um, so little bits of information are good. Um, having uh, organizations embedded and providing services uh, to uh, other parts of your organization, I think is a better way. Uh, sort of the, the show me sort of thing, building out these little processes and these little things where they take advantage of the information and the data that you have and the infrastructure that you have to make things a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, and those who are using the system learn it and, and trust it and like it and, and are able to wonder what else is out there, you know, show, showing a little RPA uh, application that, hey, hey, this this thing can watch your email for you and respond for you. And that's just a little taste of what can be done. And to get them to realize that this is all part of it. And these are all things that are at their hand, uh, you know, at their fingertips uh, and expanding off of there. Uh, I would even say our IT staff does not have a good understanding of the benefits of machine learning um, or AI or how to use it and how to implement it. Uh, we've got some pockets of some very smart people who are doing just, just like I said, reaching out to people who have needs or somebody who ha hears something on the radio 
and a commercial or something, they come in and they, they say, hey, who does this for us? And we can provide uh, presentations or solutions uh, to their issues and really learning what those are and ex expanding uh, that way. But um, little videos, little in-person training uh, are, are good. Um, larger meetings and larger, larger training uh, in-person week-long sessions uh, they, they hit the people like me real well, but they don't, they don't hit the, the customer base really well. No, I think it's definitely what you're saying, incremental. It's not the home run grand slam every time. You got to hit a lot of singles. And, and Pablo, I know we talked about this on the prep call. It sounds like it's a journey that it's never over as far as improving processes. And it, it, it sounds like it's very supple. You know, it's more like you're not something brand new. It's more like improving the processes you already have. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I, you know, we're fortunate with that. The, I'd say within OIT, we're pretty open to, you know, implementing and using AI ML where it's, where it's feasible. Um, I'd say some of the challenges we've had is with some of our stakeholders as they see it as a black box. You know, it's something that, you know, it's hard for them to understand and what are decisions being made and, and to be able to explain them. And that's why explainability is very important. Um, and which, you know, NIST is currently working on to be able to provide, okay, what, you know, how, how do we explain the bias or, you know, inherent bias that can happen in these models and such. Um, but, you know, you know, right now, I think, you know, we've done our first foray of, of, of using algorithms and statistical models to make decisions and expanding that. Uh, it's just, it's getting that, it's gaining that trust. And I think that's one of the, uh, you know, my colleague um, who's, who's, who's actually doing the next generation um, knows this. And it's one of the, the biggest things he's doing as we phase in the next generation is, is getting that buy-in, making sure that it's no longer a black box. It's now a clear box that everybody understands on a high level what's happening and how these decisions are being made. So um, little by little, we're getting there. Um, I don't think anybody's, you know, within our agency saying, no, don't do this. It's more of, I want to know more and, and be able to be comfortable of implementing this in our programs. Right, right. And Josh is a, is John, I mean, uh, is a uh, manufacturer. You're constantly having to improve your algorithms and it's, it's a very iterative type of uh, uh, yeah, process. I, I like the way yeah. Pablo put it, where we're turning a black box into a clear box. Because um, a lot of the customers that we talk to, they don't want to become experts in AI and ML. They don't want to hire a bunch of data analysts. They want to leverage the power of it, but at the same time, they don't trust it, right? So usually there's a sort of a multi-phase process where we'll look at what the data outputs look like. So if you think of for governance specifically, we want to improve the quality of data that's feeding into that governance process. And we're gonna put uh, some type of an AI ML system in between the incoming data and that governance process. So over time, we'll first of all, look at the data that's coming out, have a human validate it, that it's making sense, that the decisions it's making make sense. And that again is where the explainability comes in so that they can intelligently decide that yes, it is doing what it should be doing. And it has some insights that you know, make sense and then over time is we can trust it. Then that's when you start to turn on things like automation. Um, you know, another area that we see a lot of question marks around is, okay, you're talking about certification. Are, are you gonna be allowed to automate uh, certifying things? Um, are, 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 are the machine learning outputs gonna be trusted uh, enough that you could automate it? So having that comfort level build over time is really important from what we've seen. Thank you. And Phil, go ahead. You know, I think my view, and I was um, just speaking with my counterpart in, in GSA around the identity portfolio or the um, AI portfolio, and absolutely for the person who asked the question, you know, education comes up a lot. Um, and I think he would say that the general knowledge about, you know, machine learning, AI, what's the difference between the two, what is RPA? Um, that's not, that's not as readily available um, to the government staff at agencies as I think we would like. And so if there is something that industry can help with, it is maybe um, you know, a little bit more common sense. What are these things? And then what are the appropriate tools and use cases that make sense from a government perspective? Um, because I think, I think Robert, as you were saying, you know, there is that you know, AI is gonna solve all our problems, but really, you know, we need like small automation problems that we have today to help us get there. And then to John, maybe your point is that builds the trust so that we can solve the next order challenge and the next order challenge. And by the time we get there, 
we will have government personnel that are knowledgeable um, around these um, algorithms and how they work so that, you know, we aren't governed by the machines. You know, we do have the understanding of how they work and how they can be effective for us. Yeah, inside of ATARC, we have an AI ethics group and it's it's getting really, really interesting. We're trying to bake this in uh, from the beginning on every decision that you make. There needs to be kind of a, a framework and, and we're working with a nonprofit. They're actually going to be presenting here in the next few weeks. I'll get the details out, but it's very interesting. It's just like for CPA, you have general rules for accounting. You need to have general rules for AI ethics. So it's a big problem that we see at ATARC and we're trying to address it. It's, it's just in the beginning stages of it, but it's good to see that the government recognizes that's a problem. Um, next question. Uh, yeah, so uh, a good one here. So there's different concerns for internal and external constituents. What are the kinds of things you're using AI for? Let's just go with external constituents. You know, you know what, what, are, what are some of the things that you're really looking at um, in regards to that, some of the challenges and opportunities there? Why don't you go with you, Phil, since you're the... Sure, sure. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know if it's really artificial intelligence, but I know from our perspective, and especially for login.gov, we look on initial pass to identity verify somebody remotely. And what we've been trying to do is move away from just validating the data is correct to actually verifying that the person behind the keyboard is, is the same person who's attributing those attributes. And the way that we've been doing that is by taking, asking the user to take a picture of a government issued ID and then taking a selfie to make sure that it matches. And of course that algorithm is, you know, you know, has grown over the years and absolutely is a machine learning algorithm that we're relying on vendors to do. Um, what we've done is we've relied on our NIST partners who has a facial, facial recognition validation testing program um, to help test these algorithms. But um, we're seeing, you know, that space grow um, in terms of reducing the bias between different age groups and different ethnicities as well as reducing sort of the false positives or, and then the false rejections there. So, you know, we were, we're hopeful that that type of capability grows and matures, um, but we are deploying that today in terms of identi identity verifying um, the, the American public uh, for government yep. services. Yep, and uh, Robert, if you wanna to add to that a little bit. Yeah, it, as well. I don't. I don't know that we're we're doing as much with AI as we can. Uh, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, the um, adaptive authentication. Uh, we collect a lot of data, whether we know it or not, uh, and we have connections to a lot of people who connect a, a, a lot of data. We 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 we're we're seeing biometrics that we don't understand that we're actually collecting. We're we're seeing how fast somebody's typing on a keyboard. We're we're collecting all this information that can be used to authenticate that user above and beyond uh, a password. And uh, I believe John mentioned uh, uh, the risk score and adding to that. And so taking in all of these high, high amounts of data uh, and using that to validate the identity, uh, I think is gonna be crucial. We, we can't rely on one single factor or multi-factor anymore, especially as you jump across different medias. And, and as the adversaries are using AI against us, uh, how do we use AI to, to help protect us? And, and I think that's uh, the, the only way that we're gonna do it. We, we, we have to be able to use that, that validated data that we have to be able to make those risk determinations, to, to know and to see that that person sitting on the other side of that screen is that person. Uh, see that person is uh, who, uh, it's actually an American who is creating that, uh, uh, that post on uh, social media and that people are reading and that it's not some other bot or some other nation state actually doing it and trying to increase uh, social uh, feelings of uh, American politics or, or something like that, right? So uh, there, there's a lot that, that we can be doing and I look forward to, to being able to take steps toward that uh, because it, it's, we're, we're on the forefront of it. We're, I mean, we're, 
we are right there to be able to start doing this. You can even store getting so cheap now uh, that it's it's no longer a blocker that it used to be. Uh, and, and now it's just getting getting organized and getting that data and getting that strategy in front of us to make those risk decisions. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And I have to lean over to you, uh, Pablo, to add to this conversation because you guys are right in the middle of everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, it's interesting. You know, there's a great opportunity, I think, um, within the, the program of supporting. Um, right now, as it stands with uh, E-Verify, the employer makes the determination whether the individual standing in front of them applying for the job actually matches the information we provide and the passport or, or whatever identification they have in front of them. I think there's an opportunity there that we could help with some of the, what Phil was talking about is, um, you know, how do we know that the individual standing there, you know, looking for that job is, matches the information we have in the, in the source systems that we have, for instance, passport photo and such. Um, you know, there, there's, there's could be a case where somebody, you know, submits somebody else's identification, pastes their picture on there or something along those lines. And again, we rely on that em, em, employer to, to make the determination whether uh, they're eligible to, to or not so or the matches the identification matches the information that we have so um i think there's an opportunity there but there's also risks and and i think some maturity that's that needs to be involved with with some of the uh the risks that phil was outlining um and and at least from my perspective i am i'm looking forward to at least trying it out um i think the attorneys probably don't <laughs> but um but yeah it, it's i think there's a great opportunity there uh and, and i look forward to to hopefully getting the uh, uh the chance to be able to start that endeavor that's a good point. It puts the, the potential employer in a really tough spot. You know, they've got to be like, uh, to verify somebody, it's, it's, they're in a little bit of jeopardy and they, you know, they go either way. Yeah, I, I, I'd equate them, way. I equate them to like a bouncer at a bar, right? They had to look at the idea, is this idea legitimate? You know, and they don't, you know, they, the best they can, right? Yeah, we need, we, yeah, that's all we need is like, uh, we're facial recognition for bouncers. You know, we don't need bouncers anymore. <laughs> Right. Uh, John, and, and Bill, yes, especially with the remote, that's that's really been a challenge with the pain. Yeah, and John, you want to add something to this? Yeah, sure. So I, I guess from the governance side, uh, when we're talking about external, I'd say the biggest issue that we run into that AI addresses is the amount of data that we're looking at. So being able to go through that data continuously and making intelligent insights about it. And then the other thing is removing human bias. I think like Phil mentioned, a lot of times there's an inherent bias when you have a human making the decision on what policy should look like around governance, where an AI system is gonna remove that and make insights that, that don't necessarily um, become apparent if you're looking at it from the human perspective. And then uh, the other thing on external, on the authentication side, um, there was a, a customer I worked with, they had an interesting goal. They wanted to be able to identify the user with a very high level of confidence before the user even authenticated. And the only way that we could do that was to look at all of this context coming in, all these different signals in order to make that identification so that the password really became, you know, sort of a, 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 uh, an unnecessary part of the authentication journey for them. And the only way we could do that was to be able to, first of all, collect all that information, but then be very dynamic on how we adapt to it. So if we see certain signals and that adjusts our confidence level, what do we need to do to react to that? Do we need to take a different path? Do we need to look at different signals? Because when we looked at that, there's also, um, there's also implications in terms of cost, right? Because you're reaching out to systems to do verification. Those may be expensive transactions. And you may not need to make those expensive calls if you have a co confidence level that's already very high. So we need to be able to take a different path in order to make the most sensible and most economic choice as part of that journey. Yep. And I think John was mentioning it, you know, for now that we've gone remote, there's a lot of less of worry in some of the security systems. So I'm a user, I wanna get access to the system. Um, how can you like, is there a place for artificial intelligence to, to make it so we can really uh, onboard people want to have access to different systems, different documents, different everything is, is what is the future going to look like um, to allow people to, to look at systems and, and uh, information that they need to do their job? Where do we think we're going to be in, a, in just a few years? And we're almost to the end here. So this is like kind of our futuristic uh, 
question. Where do we where do we see ourselves? And I'll start off with you, Phil, for citizen services, maybe. You know, I uh, I'm not sure exactly sure the role of ML will be. I know that uh, we will improve upon how we do authentication via machine learning and AI, like. John was saying, there are so many signals that we don't really think about. And, you know, a human can't really, you know, plug in all those rules. Like we'll, we'll need that to detect what sort of Bluetooth devices are next to you. Are you in the same relative geo that you logged in before? Timing, all that um, behavioral biometrics, all that will have to be done uh, through machine learning. But my, my hope in the next few years is that we will have enough trust amongst all the signals and the orchestration and the, the machine learning algorithms that we can trust an online transaction at the same level we can trust an in-person transaction. Because I think what the pandemic has you know, really driven us to do as agencies is to get there. And I think that's where you know, the, the, the vendor partners, the you know, private sector industries of the world can help us innovate so that we can stitch together that solution. Um, but I think that's, that's what I'd be looking forward to with the help of um, the vendor community. To, to get us to that point. Uh, that's, fa that's fantastic. Uh, Pablo? Yeah, um, to, to add on to that, I think um, um, looking at behavioral patterns, any anomalies there could really help with that, right? And, and that's something that um, I'm hoping to look to within our program is, you know, the behavioral patterns of certain employers, you know, they have a certain number of employees, are they, are they doing the sufficient number of queries that they should be with a, a model or a, other entities are similar. So. Um, you know, using those, you know, the, the models that, or I'm sorry, the, the behavior patterns that an individual has when they try to log in might be an area where, um, you know, somebody could, you know, oh, there's somebody here who's logging in at 2 a.m. from a different geolocation, as Phil mentioned. That's, that's a red flag. That's a problem. Um, and I think, you know, no human can look through all these yeah. log files of many months of, of, of people logging in to, to, to catch that. So that, that could yeah. be the area to, to involve. Yeah. You you're right about that. Uh, Robert? Yeah, I, I completely agree. We, we've got, we, we've got a lot of that, that information, those log files and uh, using those all to our benefit and, and uh, expanding on what we already have. I think it goes back again to what I said before about the small wins, right? So John talked about that agency authenticating a person before they even put in their password. I think showing that that's possible and uh, proving it and, and getting industry to sort of adapt that. And industry is always gonna be in front of the government. Um, so if we get industry in on that and to be able to authenticate people at that level using various data sources and, and, and machine learning uh, and showing how it should be trusted uh, is is really the first step. So, uh, John, you should put that on a flyer if you can, and, and sell that as much as possible if you're not already. Uh, I think that's that's very cool and very interesting. Um, but showing wins like that really eases the tension, and 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 it sets up uh, those use cases for agencies to go, hey, look, they've already did this. They, they are they are a leader in the industry. They know more than we do. They've got a bigger budget. This is what they're supposed to do. Uh, because we do it all, all day long. We, we point to, to well, Colonel Walker's not here, but we point to the DOD and say, hey, look what they're doing. They're able to do these things. Um, so how do, how do we use other people and their successes to build on our own yeah. successes? Yeah, to that point, we have an event next week and we'll send it out. It's government only. It's going to be on identity management. And really, we're addressing all the issues that have come up in COVID and how we can work together and share best practices. Um, so we have a, uh, an event. And then, of course, we want to engage with industry um, in part of our identity management group. And uh, with industry, I will give you the last word, John. This hour went by so quickly, like I said, but I, I'd love to give you the last word um, on this topic. Um, I guess for me, you know, what we see as the roadmap at Forge Rock is being um, even more proactive. So if you think of the way we've been talking about governance and AI, that's a very reactive process. We want to move to be much more proactive. And in the context of access and authorization, that's expanding our scope beyond just a single user, but actually looking at patterns of behavior across wide user populations so that we can look at what's happening with other individuals or locations and making decisions across that population 
that may not even be necessarily a byproduct of what the actual user is doing. And in order to do that, obviously, there's a much larger scale um, implied there with the amount of data that you would have to look at to make those decisions. So AI and ML are really the only way that we have to address those types of problems. Thank you. Uh, and thank you uh, to Phil, to Pablo, to Robert and John, and we'll get Colonel Walker at a future, uh, at a future event. But thank you all for that. And uh, the next uh, thing we have that we're bringing up is we have a podcast, um, Federal IT Newscast on our podcasting platforms. And we have tomorrow, we have a um, artificial intelligence and data analytics de lab demo. This is very interesting. It's basically, we're gonna be taking a, a use case, we're gonna be applying the latest and greatest tools and putting it into a platform. And uh, we're talking about that, we're really excited about that. We've had a lot of success with our TIC 3.0 demonstration lab. And uh, we're looking to actually get some hands-on going. And I'd love to do an identity management lab where we can play with some of these latest and greatest technologies. So I expect that for 2021, um, I promise you that. So uh, everybody have a great afternoon and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much.